0: Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm really glad to have you here today. Uh, We have this great episode with Joe Cooper, the assistant professor of trumpet at Oklahoma State University. Uh, We had this great conversation about Joe's life, uh, his education, some of the struggles he's had, and then kind of a long discussion about deliberate practice. And he actually asked me some questions. That was kind of fun to have it turned back around on me. And then at the end of the episode, Joe talked about this virtual uh, trumpet audition workshop he's doing that sounds like a really cool opportunity to get some great feedback from me and Carrie Schaefer and other people who are participating in the virtual workshop. So make sure you check it out all the way to the end uh, so that you can hear what he's talking about and why he's interested in doing that. And then also, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass-playing community. While things seem to be opening up with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's pretty amazing to hear, uh, it's still a good idea to be safe as possible. So in order to be able to serve their customers while acknowledging the need for that safety, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies to include a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories. I've mentioned before that they have free virtual equipment consultations to help you make the right choice of an instrument or accessories, and so if you pair that with multiple easy financing options whenever you do decide which instrument is right for you, terms and conditions apply, it's clear that Houghton Horns is making it much easier to test drive and purchase the best equipment during our uncertain times. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customers their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to that's not spit, it's condensation. it, it's condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I am here with Joe Cooper, the assistant professor of trumpet at Oklahoma State University. You've been there for what, five-ish years, four or five years now? This Longer? is the middle of my third year. Oh, so not even quite as long as I was thinking. Yeah. Um, so relatively new at Oklahoma State. Um, I had the, I guess, failed opportunity uh, about a month ago to come out to Oklahoma, and I was going to come visit him and get to know him a little bit there. Uh, But the ice storm or the snowstorm that happened kind of uh, killed all of my travel plans. So this is my formal uh, getting to know Joe opportunity here. So I'm excited for all of you to get to know him along with me. Um, I guess we'll just start with... um, All right, before we start, I want to say thank you for joining me on my podcast. This is really great to get this chance to get to know you.
1: Congrats on 150 episodes. Uh, I guess it's like celebrate now back to work because you're a push (laughs) pad. I bet you'll hit 500. Uh, At least I hope you do because I enjoy listening. Uh, But kudos to you for that. Uh, And thanks for having me. Uh, It's not often that I get to meet with other professionals in our field in a social environment and just get the chit chat. So um, I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, 500 is a, a big number. <laughs> that seems like it's an eternity away, but uh, we'll see. Maybe someday I'll wake up and I'll be released in episode 500. That's what it seems like with 150. So um, Anyway, I appreciate that. Uh, let's get started with some of your backstory, I guess, how you got started in your early education, uh, and then we'll kind of follow your educational path
1: and see where we go from there. Okay, so I'm from Sanford, Florida, which is a city that's just north of Orlando, uh and i started music when i was five i took piano lessons with the church pianist organist tammy miller uh i feel sorry for her because we were probably not the most dedicated students my uh when i say we i mean me and my identical twin brother who's a horn professor at the university of montana um he uh we i think we stuck it out for a year uh, and then we quit because soccer was more fun so my beginning in music was very (laughs) short-lived Uh, uh, but then like many, I, I began playing trumpet in middle school and sixth grade and was probably your average student. Uh, you know, just kind of sort of practiced all the time, uh, and kind of went through the motions. Uh, you know, in, in Florida, we have a, we have an all state system, but it's different than other places. So we have like county and state and the county I was in was really strong. Uh, and so often it was not uncommon that people would make county, but they wouldn't make state and vice versa. Uh, So it was was like a healthy competition. Uh, But, you know, and so in eighth grade, I was like first in the county, I was like excited about it. And then in ninth grade, I didn't make anything. I was third chair in the second band of my high school. Uh, I didn't make county, I didn't make state, and I wanted to quit. And I told my dad that I I still remember the day I was out working the yard, he pulled up and I was like, I want to quit. And he said, you're not allowed to quit. And I was like, well, I'll show you. I'll do music, but I'm not really invested. So I was more into running at that point. And I, was, I just started running cross-country and track. Uh, and so I was like, well, I'll do this music thing because I have to, but I'm going to run. That's my dream. Uh, and didn't make anything my freshman year. And my sophomore year, uh, running was starting to take off. There's a guy uh, in the track team, John Hubbard used to, he over the summer, he came to my house every day at 5 a.m. Uh, and I would get up and we'd go run together. And that was probably my first taste of what it's like to be a professional musician. Because like, you know, the grind of it and that there is deliberate intention in what you're doing and like the practice element. Uh, So I think there were benefits to that much later. Uh, But I was like, running is great, you know? Uh, In the end of my sophomore year, we were state champions in track. Uh, We won a championship, my relay and the team. I was surrounded by really good guys. Uh, But then I was told I couldn't do that (laughs) because I had tendonitis in both legs. I was in a lot of pain. And I was like, oh man, what am I going to do? That year, I also... Uh, I had not made state the previous year, but then I got first in the state in orchestra. uh, And I did that three years in a row. And that to me, I know everybody's done that at the professional level. uh, But that to me was like, okay, music is an option, right? But the coolest thing about that, uh, the summer after my sophomore year of high school was because I was a top chair at state, uh, I was invited to participate in the Florida International Festival. And the headlining group was the London Symphony Orchestra. So I was invited to be in a brass quintet and we work with bob hughes who is the bass trombone player uh and we had quintet coaching all the time uh the other trumpet player was kevin Jibo, uh, and i know he's enjoying career success uh, and and then we got to do a side-by-side and sit in with the orchestra and i remember just being so in shock of all that uh the third trumpet player looks at me on stage and goes, are you all right and i was like no <laughs> <laughs> what am i doing here you guys like it was just kind of one of those moments you know But it was really the the seminal moment in my career. Like I, looking back, it's like it's really what made me love orchestral playing and want to do that. Uh, So auditioned into Indiana and studied with John Rommel, and uh, so many great things there. He was different than my first teacher, John Almeida. John Almeida was the professor at the University of Central Florida, uh, and I studied with him for six years, and he gave me like a really thorough. Uh, vetting of the Arban book, at least the first 80 pages. <laughs> I remember like jumping in there and then uh, kind of rushing through my assignments for the week and then trying to flip to the back and find the hardest thing. Sure. Uh, at that point, it's probably Fox Hunters, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: right, right.
1: But, you know, so I John Rommel's, uh all about sound concept and he's he's like such a great visionary and CEO for how you want to see and and see uh, hear your, your own playing, you know, have that ideal player in your head. Uh, and that was really good for me. Um, and not to, he was like the finalist for the Chicago principal seat while I was studying with him so every week he'd come in and sit across from you and play at your head and you'd just be like that sounds so good mm. you know uh, and I was at, at India in a really good time a lot of those people who were in the studio at that time are also still in music uh, which is I don't think it's rare but I don't think it's common that a lot of people uh, transition and follow the path uh, so that was cool that I now feel like I have a network of people I can call upon that were, I was in school with you know Um, so the, the fast track, so I left Indiana, went to Rice, uh, stayed with Maurice Bettiali and was at Rice for a couple of years. And I was at this point in my life, I was like, I'm going to play in an orchestra. That's what I'm going to do. I have always wanted to do that. That's my thing. That's where I feel comfortable. Uh, and then I got out of school and, and then I had a really healthy dose of life. (laughs) So, uh, my dad had just passed away. And I was living in a big city uh, with no financial support, but being like, okay, I'm I'm gonna figure this out and make this happen and go take auditions, you know? Uh, And then Hurricane Ike hit and put us, I didn't have power for two weeks, but we were out of kind of out of work for like two months. Uh, And then the economy crashed, this is all in 2008. So it was kind of like what's happening in in the pandemic times uh, a little differently. so that was a heavy dose of life. And I was just like, well, what am I going to do now? And to me, the survival aspect was, well, I'm going to do everything that comes my way. Even if it scares me, I'm going to jump in and try it out. So I built a private studio, like 40 to 50 students. I was teaching at a community college. Uh, I had one student there. Uh, I was coaching the Houston Youth Symphony. Uh, and two of those players are now professional orchestra players. And they inspire me, to good players. Uh, you know, just doing a little bit of everything, subbing in Houston Grand Opera, you know, uh, and I was thinking about it, and then I was on this flight. Um, my girlfriend at the time and I were getting uh, more serious, and she's now my wife. So, uh, you we were. She's a performing artist too. She's a violinist. Uh, and I was on a flight out of Atlanta, and the woman next to me struck up the conversation that we all enjoy. Is like, what do you do? Oh, I play the trumpet. Oh, my cousin plays the banjo. You know. Yeah. Uh, we're the She's, same <laughs> <laughs> right right uh and when she was talking to me she said well what are you going to do if you get hurt and uh, my mind exploded i i <laughs> i had no idea i was like i guess i'll go back to square one you know what would i do like that would be effectively game over for a performing athlete or a performing artist right so i really thought about that and where i was and i i enjoyed teaching my mom was a great teacher for 43 years uh and i think that's probably why it's in my blood uh, but I was like, I, I think I'm going to do that. I think I want to teach college. Uh, and so I pursued a DMA at UT with uh, Ray Sasaki, mm-hmm. uh, who was an important pick for me because he was the first player I studied with who was not orchestrally oriented. Uh, and I really liked the way that he got me out of my box. I feel like I was really good at, at being literal, uh, but he it's like he added like a color palette to what I was doing. I was like in monochrome, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got there, I started teaching at Texas Lutheran. I taught there for seven years and then... Uh, there was a while there. I was also teaching at University of Texas San Antonio. My wife was in the Austin Symphony, so I was probably commuting about 20 hours a week on top of both studios. And then I was eventually subbing in with the Austin Symphony quite a bit. So our lives are very busy. Uh, we had a newborn about the same time. <laughs> so I think I was like zombified. Yeah. I, uh, I, have, I probably hold the daily record for caffeine shots, you know? <laughs> I won't disclose the number because I know <laughs> trouble players can get into that kind of stuff. But uh, but you know, and then I I uh from UTSA I came to OSU. Yeah. So that's kind of my path.
0: Gosh, you just were doing the thing, you know, like the the thing. It's it's interesting because I think it's sort of we just accept that as musicians, that this is just how this is a life path, which is I will take everything that comes my way, I'll piece together a career. And that means I'll be driving everywhere and I'll have to do taxes in like 20 different states or whatever, you know, like, it's just sort of a thing that we accept. And it's a it's a it is a viable career path. But like, I feel like people looking in from the outside, would be like, this is insane. You know, <laughs> there's just so much. We do a lot, I guess, for this career path that we that we want to follow. So. Um, Can I, I want to stick on something that I think is really interesting. It's earlier in in what you described, which is I had this bad experience, so I wanted to quit. And then I had this good experience and that made me want to pursue it. I feel like this is a lot of people kind of ride this roller coaster of the, the result of their efforts sort of guides them in the direction of whether they think this is the thing they want or not, as opposed to regardless of what happens, I'm convinced this is the thing. I feel like that's pretty rare for someone just to know. Um, can you speak to that a little bit more and maybe as you've seen it in your own teaching and students who maybe have had these negative outcomes and so they're unsure, they don't have a lot of confidence, and then when you see them maybe have better outcomes, they start to have a little bit more confidence in their ability to do this. Maybe it's professionally or maybe it's just, I want to continue pursuing this. I think this is kind of an important aspect or something to talk about, this motivation part of it. Do you have anything to expand upon that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, Often I I think that I'm still learning all that stuff too. Even though I've had these experiences in my life where I've 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 had that happen and I've gone through it, I still think that every time it happens, I'm still at, like the first step. I'm still trying to figure out what this means and how what do I do with it, right? Uh, and lately, I embrace that attitude. I'm telling my students to run towards the fire. Uh, they'll come in and play in a lesson, and I'm like, no, run towards the fire. Like, put your sound out there. Like, do this. Do what. Do more than what you think you should do. Uh, and then we can rein that back in. I, you know, pedagogically, I think it's like we find like the right wall in the room, and the the wall on the right is like the underdoing its side, and the the left wall of the room is like the overdoing its side. And until you find your walls, you can't really find the center of the room, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I've just been thinking a lot about motivation in general uh, for myself because there's just going to be a long period where you're probably going to have more negative outcomes than positive And it depends on how you define that, of course. But I feel like as we're developing skill, it, it, no matter how hard we work, generally things are not always going to go the way we want them to, even if we've put in a ton of work. Even if it's the best work we've ever done, we as musicians are always looking for layers of progress to be made on top of that. And so um, maybe that's another way to frame this question. How do you as a performer and how do you as a teacher... Sort of help keep these things that part of it in perspective. That we want to have a high standard, but we also have to celebrate the small wins if we want to continue moving forward.
1: Well, I think for me, it's uh, you know, I try to make everything a game, and I think when I when I'm not in the game aspect of it, I'm making things overly serious. I'm I've, if I've learned nothing about myself, <laughs> I've learned that I'm a thousand percent checked in all the time, and so that's all a positive thing and can be a detriment because uh I remember at UT, when I go to play a concert, I I go out and play really well, but I chip one note and I go home and I'd be like, really ticked off about it. And there's an unhealthy aspect to that, right? And for me, when I was applying for jobs, I, I knew that about myself. I was like, you know, how many rejection letters am I going to get in before I just chuck the whole thing out the window? Uh, and so I was like, you know, what, I'm going to make it a game. And I, I only applied for maybe four or five places before OSU and I even told my wife when I uh, when I was applying, I said, you know what? I'm going to get a rejection letter. I'm going to collect one. I'm going to get one from every state. Uh, I'm going to just make a game out of it because if I can do anything right, I can collect rejection letters from every state of the <laughs> union. Uh, and for me, you know, the motivation is one that I always want to do a better level of a perfectionist. But also knowing that I can get into my head a little bit about that. I'm trying to make it more fun. You know, my students too, we're like, we're trying to, we work really hard, but we also try to have fun while we're doing it, you know? Uh, And the more fun it gets, the more fun we have, the more likely we are to run towards the next fire, you know? Yeah.
0: I find this interesting because you hear, I feel like around in this, just there's this general conversation about health, uh, whether it's physical health or mental health or spiritual or emotional health, right? Like there seems to be people are becoming, They're trying to drive awareness to we should try to do things in a healthy way. Now, I don't, there's no way you could disagree with that. I'm not trying to present the idea that we shouldn't care about that. But you know, when you were, when the 2008- Crash hit, I guess, if you want to call it that, the financial uh, collapse, you know, your motivation was probably I need to like make money to put food on the table, right? Which you could say is external, which you could say is a quote unhealthy, as opposed to I'm going to just continue to invest in myself and it'll be completely fine. And I have total faith. Like I'm sure to some degree it was like I'll take everything because I got to pay the bills, you know? And so I think I'll be curious for your perspective on this. I think both external, internal, possibly healthy and unhealthy goals or, or motivations are can be used to move us forward. I just think, you know, healthier ones are going to last us longer. So ultimately, we want to maybe transition into that. But it's kind of hard to separate ourselves from the need to put food on the table as a motivation until we
1: are able to sort of do that with some regularity, I guess. Well, it's like we, we go to school and we understand the drive it takes and we're constantly told it easier to get into the NBA statistically than it is to get a professional performing job, you know, things like that. Uh, but I can't, I mean, I have so many friends who've told me that they got their job in their hour of need. Like it was probably like the last audition or, and maybe they say that every time. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, but it was like, you know, this is, this is my, my life is, uh, as a a human being, right? We are what we do. Uh, it's not what defines us. It's just something we do. Right. Uh, and so like, you have a family and you have kids and you have to feed them. Of course, life takes over. And sometimes I wonder if that added intensity is what pushes us to achieve what we didn't know we could achieve, right? Like, what is the catalyst that gets us there? Is it just because we're just all of a sudden much more aware of ourselves and all of a sudden it's like utopian and like, oh, we figured it out. You know, like, what is it that pushes us in that hour? You know, And I feel like that hour is kind of where we need to be, uh, but you know you there are people who get that hour and it pushes them ahead there are people who get there and they kind of shut down uh but to me it's like if i get there in no matter what the outcome is because yeah you're going to fail a lot but it's like if i can learn something from this experience then it's always a win and so for me the motivation there too is yeah like i gotta in 2008 especially it's like i gotta Pay my rent and I remember being two months behind on my student loans, which are paid off. No, great. You know, but it was like, I was like two months behind on them when I started out and I was like, what am I going to do? You have like real existential things you have to take care of. But you know, also how do you stay motivated in that time? To me, it's just, you know, make a game out of it. Like you got to find. The next, you know, if you put out a sheet and you just put check boxes, I have students who do this now. They'll they'll write out check boxes. One of them's like, just to check the boxes feels so good. It's like the dopamine you hit you get when you look at your phone or whatever. You know, it's. I think that's the the motivating factor, at least for me anyway, is like, what can I do? How do I grow from this experience? Okay, that was a terrible recital. That was a terrible X Y Z. What did I get out of it so that the next time I can be aware of that? Right?
0: Yeah. That's a sidebar. When we were designing the Gold Method app, like we put like individual checkboxes you could do on the the reps themselves for that exact reason, because it's like, oh, I did that one, and I see the checkmark. Um, okay, so I'm gonna play devil's. It, I told I, I I. This is an important discussion for sure. This idea of if I learn something from it, I you know, like it's worth it. Right. But it's so much easier said than done. You know, it's so much easier for me to say it to somebody else than for me to go take an audition to not advance or to not win. And they'd be like, well, did I learn something? (laughs) At least it was worth it. You know, so I also believe that there's a, there's a baseline, you know, fixed mindset versus growth mindset. If you know that Carol, like that's obviously a part of this conversation. Like if you're someone with a growth mindset and you say that to someone with a fixed mindset, like it's not going to be viewed or received the same way. So, um, what's the, what's as an educator, what's your role in helping people understand that? Do you feel it's just introducing the idea and hoping that people latch onto it? Do you really try to like, do you really try to get someone to understand? Um, or do you just let them come into their own? Like, how do you manage that? Cause I feel like that is the key to long-term, more or less, quote, happiness on our instruments is we find other things that make it worth it rather than just the singular goal that we wanted to achieve.
1: Yeah. So, with my students, like, I, I always look at my students via how I exist, right? So, uh, I'm like, well, how was I? And then how did that mean for them, right? Uh, and for me, I, I, I had so much respect and I revered my teachers so much, I didn't feel comfortable reaching out to them. Uh, or in really engaging with them is what I think. Uh, it was like, do it like this, and I would do it, right? And I never really questioned it or thought it not disrespectfully and like, why are you telling me to do that? I'm not going to do that. Uh, but really critically engaging in what was being presented to me. And so for my students, I, I try to break that wall down. I, I tell them like, you can text me between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. any day. You know, August through May. If you need something, you let me know. The worst that can happen is you extend yourself, and I say, "Well, it's kind of obvious. Here it is." But that's a great thing too. It's I just want them to feel like they're open to communicate in that respect. And then, you know, when they have a concept, you know, if I say, "Hey, could you play it more like this?" Uh, I I encourage them to engage with me. Some students have really embraced that. I've I've had a couple students who are almost argumentative. Uh, And I'm okay with that, as long as the end game is success, right? Because I think everybody is different. Some students, they'll just do what you ask them to do. Uh, Other students, uh, they don't understand it, so they want to engage with it. It's the concept of aporia, which is uh, you get an instruction, you know what the instruction means, you know what you're being asked, but you're not quite sure how to do it. And so you're kind of in limbo, right? Uh, and it's very Socratic, asking a lot of questions. I like to be really, I really like to pick them apart. Like, how do, how do you feel about that? Scale of one to 10. You know, when you go to the, I probably spent too much time in emergency rooms, but I was in there and there's the chart where it has the pain scale on one to 10 and 10 is like the, the the emojis crying, right? And so I, but I was like, I'm gonna steal that, right? Cause I'm always trying to steal things from other uh, like carpentry is measure twice, cut once. So I like uh, think twice, play it once kind of stuff, right? Uh, so to them, it's like, put that on a scale of one to 10. Now tell me why you say it's one to 10. Why is it not a 10? Why is it not a one? Why are you at five? Get out of five. Don't be a five, right? Five is the worst. You're not committed. You're just going through the motions. Uh, I feel like engaging with them on that level, making them kind of like engage with me is probably the most important thing, even if it sometimes is like not, it may seem toxic, Uh, in the sense that they're argumentative or like, but why do you want me to do that? And I I want to talk it out so they understand the reasoning behind it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it totally makes sense.
0: Do you... What about the students... So you have students that will clearly embrace this. And I I think to some degree, (laughs) that's how we begin to own the process as we ask questions and we begin to understand at a more deep level. What about the students that don't embrace it do you find that they pro- they progress in the same manner by just taking what you're saying or do you find that students who ask these questions are actually progressing at a different rate i mean you don't have to name any names obviously but this is kind of an interesting experiment you've been <laughs> doing i guess
1: well you know it's for me i you know my teaching began at the bottom i started with middle schoolers in in rural settings in texas and i've kind of worked my way up the ladder and in that time i've realized that if i stay the course Eventually the students come around to seeing what I'm intending. So at first, uh, they may say, Well, why are you doing that? Or, but I like it like this, or all these X, Y, Z grade artists do it this way. Why are you asking me to do it differently? And sometimes, you know, you get in front of the baton and they ask you to do something differently. How malleable are you? Are you are you plastic? Are you able to adjust that? Or are you going to be like really set in your ways? Uh, the cool thing is I've seen students kind of resist a little bit and uh, through working with them on it and engaging with them, I see that over time that we get the results. So uh, even, the, even the most stubborn teacher and student, I believe, uh, through working in that kind of open dialogue, I, I fear the worst would be is if you weren't open about it and that you were mulling these things over independently, right? Especially at a young age, if young students, who do they go to talk to about these things? Sometimes they're just in their heads. Sometimes they talk to their friends who are also... Uh, early on the ladder of success, So at least they have an open invitation, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, again, I don't have very much practical
0: experience. We were talking about this right before we got on. like i've I've certainly taught people and I've worked with people and 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 seen some progress, but I don't have the same kind of practical experience as someone who's been teaching for a very long time. Um, But it's very interesting to me, in theory, the idea that, you know, we're the experts, you know, like we're the people who know what's supposed to happen. And so, but at the same time, engaging with the material is how it actually is going to, you know, come into the person as as ownership, right? Because there's that difference between this is what I've been told to do, and I know why I'm doing it, you know, so trying to, and that's what's going to drive Sort of not just enjoyment, but actual progress long term is that ability to um, think th- critically through the process, be able to ask questions: Why am I struggling? What's the solution? That that kind of dynamic I think is super important to develop. So it's, I think it's very. I mean, again, I don't really know anything, but I think it's pretty cool that you're really valuing that in your teaching.
1: Well, I think as a player too. You know, I I think about how many times I felt like I was plateauing or I was stuck, and I think if I had a more aggressive Search for answers, or if I think if I was really saying you know I tried it two times instead of saying well if I just keep trying it this way it's eventually going to work, if I had engaged a little more then maybe I would have found my solutions faster. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, and you probably would have it would have been less of a headache as as well, right? Like not only (laughs) would you found the solution faster, but you would have had fewer negative solutions or negative you know does that make sense? Like you're. You're minimizing the bad and maximizing the good. I guess that's a way to say it when you start to think critically. And then, of course, for me with this gold method stuff, like it's not specific, like uh, problem solving, but you know, being able to give yourself kind of a specific structure with how you're gonna like do that practice, like saying, I'm gonna give myself three chances or four chances, or I'm gonna work on this for 10 minutes or whatever, right? Like it gives you even a more specific structure, I think, to get even more out of it. Because it takes some of the, you know, the cognitive load and the guesswork out of it. So it becomes, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I just need to get the most out of what I'm going to do. Do you have um, things that you recommend for your students uh, in this particular, whether it's, you know, the way I think about it or, or differently, but structure in general? Do you have ways that you try to encourage your students to think about structure and how they incorporate that into their practice?
1: So this is kind of where I fear, feel like fear. <laughs> this is where I feel like I am as a teacher in, in this point of my career is that I'm really trying to reinvigorate some of these concepts and ideas. And, you know, I think we, I sent you, we were talking about a little bit the, the mirror edition, of the Arvin book and how they have a chart on how to prepare for a contest. Uh, and I think about my own journey. It's like, you know, at Indiana, I never warmed up. I just picked up and went. And I took that all the way through Rice. And uh, I remember one time we were playing Mahler 2. My friend looks at me, goes, aren't you going to warm up? And I was like, Aren't you ready to go? Like, isn't this just what we do? Uh, And that's probably some of the insecurity as a player that I had is that I would hear my classmates just pick up and sound so consistent and wonderful. And I didn't have that consistency. And so when I graduated, I I pursued the Claude Gordon uh, systematic approach book for a while. And then I started to develop a routine that was consistent and that I was having a lot of structure because before that, I just kind of picked up and went. And then I was like, well, let me be more structured in my approach. Uh, and then, you know, I've gone through periods where I'm playing low first or I'm playing high first or I'm doing a lot or I'm doing very little. And even now, I feel like it's very flexible. It it, it really depends on what's coming up. And I want my students to kind of have that kind of flexibility, too. Uh, so when they come in as freshmen, I'm giving them a really structured routine to do. And uh, it's kind of in blocks. So the first block is kind of a response, uh, get things working then i have like a sound endurance range block uh then i have a flexibility block uh, and then a theory articulation fingers block where you know they start with clarks and they go through that and then they get into the nagel speed studies kind of stuff uh, and with those blocks i like them because it's a very structured thing i have them doing i i have them playing and i have required rests like you play five minutes you rest five minutes for long tones, if you if you do a really strong, like uh, high or rangy or powerful thing, maybe take a little extended break. So maybe five minutes of that, 10 minutes rest. Uh, and then I start with a very strict thing. And then as they progress through the degree, I kind of become a little more hands-off. I want them to kind of feel comfortable saying, okay, well, for long tones and the strength sound block I've been doing, uh, expanding long tones. Well, now I'm going to do more of a chick flow study approach. So I feel like the blocks are, are are set, and you can rearrange the orders of the blocks, and you can change the material you're working on as long as in your routine you have this kind of set ignition uh, experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Our,
0: the block is also just a focus, right? It's not necessarily that you're only doing that one singular thing. You still have other things you're doing, but your main focus is on this one particular aspect of your playing, right?
1: Right. And that is actually key because I have them journaling. uh, And in the journal, they have to rate each session on a scale of one to 10. So if, you know, often as a teacher, a student would come in on Wednesday and say, uh, this is the worst I've played this in a week. And it's like, well, let's suss out if that's really the truth, right? Uh, And you can go back and and that number is sometimes helpful because you can see it was peaking like the week before and all of a sudden they had a bad day. It's like, what'd you do on that day? Well, I played six hours. Well, it felt great. (laughs) It's like, don't fall into that trap, right? Uh, you know, and then the other side, like the I make them write, so they have to rate it, but they also I actually have a column. It's funny you said the word focus, uh, because they actually have to write a focus and what they were thinking about. Uh some days when I go to do response, it comes out easily. So what am I focusing then? Am I just going, oh great, today's a good day? Or am I saying, How can I make this little part better? Right.
0: Yes. Okay. We're gonna get into this. <laughs> um brace yourself. How long are your blocks?
1: They vary in length. See, so, okay, the problem I have with a two structured format, so, for instance, uh, some of the method books is they're they're very strict on the time you should play and not play. But how do you accommodate the college curriculum, and how do you accommodate ensemble? Sometimes they go to ensemble and they sit for two hours, and sometimes they go and they blow their brains out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how are you fostering a system within something that is out of your control?
0: Yeah, that would just be workload, right? Like, they would just have... Okay, so I mean by blocks, like how long are they focused on a particular thing?
1: Right. So in specifically in the, the thing we're using right now, uh, it's five minutes, and we start with a five-minute on, five-minute off approach. Uh, and I want them to be sensitive to when they're starting to tire, but not when they're fatigued. And then I want them to have X... Uh, amount of minutes before the rehearsal. So I encourage them to get up in the morning and warm up, mm-hmm. like try to get in there and get it done and then have an hour or so before your first rehearsal, right? So it's for I start out with five on, five off, but I'm open to that. If I, I mean, I have students come in and say, well, I feel like I'm not as in much shape as I was before. It's like, okay, let's do seven on, uh, four off, or we, we play around with the times yeah. until we start to find a balance.
0: So then, so your first block is a response focus, and then it's um, a sound, endurance, range focus, and then a flexibility, and then fingers, technique type theory thing. So for the response, I'm just, I'm just not, cause my, con, my conception, well, I'll just say my conception, my conception of block teaching is uh, like, actually, I'm actually learning about this right now from my kids' schooling. Uh, this Waldorf school, they'll have like a math block. And so for like two weeks, they in their main lessons, it's like most, I mean, they certainly do other things, but they have like a math block where they interact with these concepts. And it's, they can get, I was, I'm really actually interested in this because they can get deeper into it than if they just kind of sort of come back to it each day. And then they'll have a math block and then it'll be like a language block. And they won't really do a ton of math focused stuff for a little while. And then when they come back, all of the other work that they've done, they're more developmentally, they're further along developmentally, so they can actually remember the stuff that they did. Uh, this is also taking advantage of kids' brains and how they learn. So that's kind of what I'm interested of seeing, like, is so the block is five minutes on, five minutes off, but do you have, like, a, is it one week that you focus on response and then you move on to sound? Mm-hmm. Is it two weeks? Like, what's that kind of structure?
1: So it, it's a... It's a- in perpetuity, so it, it goes on forever, and it's it's one of those things that I want them to think about creative. So I, that was really cool about the blocking and and your your kid, and you know my kid, she's five, and I'm learning also from what they're doing in school. Uh, it's amazing how much school has changed since I was there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know what I'm doing is I'm trying to rely on my experience as a freelance trumpet player in Houston and Austin. Is you know when I, it's like two weeks to downbeat at all times. You get called and you have about two weeks generally to prepare the music and be ready for it. And so the block, I, I have a structure to it is that I'm when it starts, we're going through like the fundamental stuff. We're trying to build a platform, right? So it's it's uh, the response. I have them doing CEG because personally, I feel like the mid-range of the trumpet is more the top of the staff than the bottom. I know band rooms around the country are starting on concert F <laughs> the, at the bottom of the staff. And I'm trying to get them higher than that just to be set kind of in the middle. Uh, so there's the one aspect we're working on the fundamental skill but then I'm also, as they're getting towards junior recital, I'm saying, how do you break down the pieces you're currently working on into those blocks so that your morning session isn't just you know, in a vacuum? I'm not doing Clark 3 today because I have to play Clark 3. I'm working on uh, flexibility. I'm doing Clark page 41 because of diminished arpeggios because I'm playing the Gedeke concert etude and there's some diminished arpeggios there, right? Yeah,
0: I see what you're saying. So the blocks are like, you do a five-minute like a five-minute focus on response and then you take a five-minute break and then maybe a five-minute uh, block on sound range or whatever yeah. right and then you take a five-minute okay so the blocks are just like a focus for a period of time rather than like a like I we for two weeks like response is the thing because you know with the gold method the the, the last principle the, the D is define time frame and I very much believe in this as an insanely effective tool for growth because it's like i'm going to pursue this particular goal for like two weeks and then what i, I this there is a question at the end of this but what i like about it is it does two things the first is that it allows you to delay deciding if you're successful more than one day right because sometimes it's just like every day we're trying to figure out is the work that i'm doing hap- working And when we say, okay, like I'm going to spend two weeks pursuing this, well, all of a sudden, every day you're just in the middle of the process. Like if it's not working, well, maybe tomorrow because the process isn't over. And it sort of teaches us that the process itself is what gets us there, not necessarily like really good practicing or knowing all the answers. It's just we apply a process. This is how like everything in life works. The other thing it does is at the end of the two weeks, you get to ask, did my plan work? And then you get to refine the process you used, and you're basically practicing deliberately on the process itself or applying the scientific method. And so that's why I'm really interested in this idea of blocks. And va- from my understanding, Vacciano did like a key of the week, right? So it would be like, we're going to play everything in the key of D for, and then the key of A and then the key of this to work on transposition. So the theory of this is very interesting to me and how you would structure a curriculum. But I, I, I that's why I was, uh, misunderstanding you at first i think and, and i totally understand what you're saying now i think it's great because
1: focus of attention is everything when we're playing that's that's you know that's in everything i think these days is trying to steal our attention from us right so it's the phone in the pocket vibrating or or even the phantom vibration where you think you feel it and you pull it yeah, out and nothing yeah. right uh or you know for them i think about if you're in a healthy college environment you're getting opportunities all the time So something about just the last week uh, my students went over at OCU and they uh, heard the Tom Hooton recital and masterclass. Uh, then this weekend we had a bunch of trumpet stuff going on. Uh, U.S. Air Force Band West Street and Brass came in. This week we have a guest masterclass uh, by Tony Prisk of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And so the students are coming to me and they're looking at me and they're like, uh, "Well, I'm like completely overwhelmed with information. And how do I synthesize that to what I need to do? And I feel like the blocks." It kind of offers a structure there, but the structure isn't so fixed that they can't apply what they're currently hearing, right? So I really like the idea you said is that you're also working on the time frame, uh variable. And for for them, I'm thinking about that too. It's, you know, when I, I just have a student come in and they're like, oh man, I'm terrible. I'm the world's worst trumpet player. Uh, you have to say, well, that's not true. <laughs> and uh, think about where you were in August. Look Look back long-term. Can you see the growth? Okay, so, you know, peaks and valleys, you're in the middle of, What's usually, I think it's like the dark, the dawn is or or the night is darkest before the dawn kind of thing. It's you get really in your head and then you have this leap forward, right? And so I like that there's like a structured element to the day-to-day practice, but that the focus column, they really have to choose based on their either recent information they got from whoever's masterclass or what's going on. But they're, you know, think about that. I, I still feel like there's things from my education that I haven't unpacked yet or that I thought I did. You know, you like 10 years later you start to go, oh, that's what they meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right?
0: Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And so I got a question. When you with these focus blocks, let's say you have a student and you're you're saying, okay, okay, I'm going to ask a different question now <laughs> cuz you didn't even know what question I was going to ask. I'm going to ask a different one now do you guide their foot when they're doing a response folk to focus thing do you say this is what i want you to focus on or do you say i just want you to figure out what to focus on
1: well you know every day is different right uh and i think about you know we are our musical instrument a lot of ways i i was thinking about this the other day because uh you know if you pick up a cello the cello is the instrument you are playing the instrument uh, but I was t- talking to a cellist and I said, uh, you know, sometimes I get these evil ideas in my brain, like how great would it be go uh, and if they would ever volunteer, which I'm sure they would not, to every orchestral trumpet player in the United States and say, can I measure your lip width? Can I measure the 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 intraoral capacity of, of your oral cavity? How about your thoracic? Can we measure all these things and see if there's anything in common? Uh, and I don't like that that's exclusionary to some people, but I do like that it hits on how complicated what we do is. Uh, and you know if if I'm thinking in the morning about response, that's open ended because response is important. But some days uh, response might be that I'm not having my air continuous, so I might have them direct their air into the instrument and then have the the sound start on the air. Some days I might have them if that's working really well. I might have them go for immediate sound. Are you able to command that the tone starts right away within the air column? Right, and I like them to have those different ideas. So that it's not set in, well, I have to do it this way. It's more open-ended like, well, this is the general idea of what I'm thinking about. And whether or not I got three hours sleep, I'm dehydrated, my lips are chapped or I ate spicy food before my session, You know, how am I going to take what I have to work with right now and get it to the performance level I want, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So then, how do you get them to decide? on what it is that they're going to do. Because like obviously the exploratory aspect of practice is a very necessary thing, but the exploratory practice is supposed to get us to, I found something that's reliable. Because when we get to performance, we want some degree of certainty that if I do X thing, I will get the, the result that I want. And so if everything is, all, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you are saying this, but if everything is always improvisatory, we never find consistency in any one particular approach. So how do you bridge that gap?
1: Well, so there's the structure of it. So there's the every day in this first routine, I want you hitting response range sound. So there's the fundamental aspect of the platform of what we need to do. It's kind of like I know Barbara Butler talks about building a house with bricks, and that's such genius stuff that I have to try to steal it and interpret it my way. Uh, But it's you know I have to have them hitting the 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 base foundation. For instance, you know uh, you're playing really loud in ensembles right now. Are you practicing really soft? There's balance there, right? So in one spot our one aspect that has to be improvisatory, but in the other aspect, there's still the general tenets of what we do. There's response and there's flexibility and there's sound, right? So to me, I'm trying to find where those meet. I, you know, this is really fascinating to me too. It's how people are so opposed that they're like, well, I buzz all the time. And they're like, I never buzz. And if I look at it on a graph, I feel like there's a line in the middle that the best of both are hitting and they're both really close to that. But then we approach it as in we're doing completely polarized things. Whereas actually the ones who are doing effectively are doing almost the same thing. They might just be on either side of just a fixed line in the middle. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I guess the thing, you know, my question for you is in your career, have you had times where you were more structured or not? And is there anything that ties all of those uh, different phases of your playing and growth as a professional? Is there something that you see that's consistent through all of them? Or is it, have they been different?
0: Uh, I have certainly been less structured than I am now. Um, Yes. And then even within this period of my life, there are, I would say I'm generally much, I'm, I'm heavily structured in general. But there are times, you know, like I have these defined time periods, right? So at the, like I literally yesterday just finished a four week fundamentals routine that I did. So today I may not immediately hop on another one. I may just play the trumpet for fun. I don't know. Like we'll see, right? So yes, I have been less structured, and yes, I am sometimes less structured. Um, the thing that I feel like I do better now than I used to is I'm significantly more specific about what I'm trying to accomplish in, in my practice sessions. I used to make the mistake of thinking, if I play this Arbonne exercise, I will get better at articulation. Like I just thought it was like a thing that they just magically did it. But now, and this is why I'm asking these questions, because now it's so much more about specificity of what i am trying to implement into my playing. So if i'm playing like a, i started with Arbin exercises but it was it was very much about the way i was breathing and the way i was releasing. So i actually don't even care what i'm playing. What i'm playing serves as a way for me to practice the thing i'm trying to implement, right? So it's like that's why flexibility doesn't matter to me at all because i at, at least at this stage of my development i'll need more than a week to really be able to like see that I've implemented something. And then from there, it's like, now that I've implemented this, let's say I did it in a month, which is not true. Then it's like, okay, how do I slowly do harder and harder things while not losing that thing that I implemented? So it's always first... What is the thing that's going to be healthy trumpet playing? That's what Barbara would say. And then how do I get, how do I manage that on harder and harder things? So now I'm on like top tones stuff. Like two years later, I'm now trying to do various things on top tones while keeping that same articulation approach, right? And so that, like, if there's a thing, I don't know if there's a common thread in there to answer your question. um, But that is where, like I said, that's why I feel like I don't need as much um, flexibility, right? Because it's basically like I'm just using this to develop this thing, and I'm going to do that for a month, and then I'll change it if I need to change it a month later. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Well, and that's the the whole highly volatile aspect of it is, you know, the one the people writing the books are further along in their careers. So uh, we were in a masterclass, and Allison Balsam was there, and somebody said, "What do you do for your warm up every day?" And she goes, "Whatever I need to do." And that's such a Zen mindset that she can pick up and play and say, well, here I need a little more flexibility or here I maybe need this. And I know some people may think that's a cop-out answer. You know, uh, I I think often I I read the book by Jeff Colvin, Talent is Overrated, and how it kind of blew my mind about how like Mozart really maybe wasn't a genius that he just got his 10,000 hours or whatever it was in because he studied with the best pedagogue in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think about, you know, So the people writing the books are the people who are at the end. They're at the the, the acme of of achievement, and they're the ones who we're embracing. But then we look back to the younger players. And so when you say you finish a four-week block and you get there and then you're able to evaluate, uh, was this effective, was it not effective? I think about 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and are they able to have the same discernment? You know, Maybe in their own path and growth, they're unable to make that determination at that point. And I want them to be okay with it. I think sometimes there is no answer, right? So my question, I guess, we're, this is fun asking questions back and forth. <laughs> it's just like what I teach. Uh, is when when you get to the end of a block, if you don't know what to do next, or if you get to the end and you're like, I don't know if that was, uh, I don't know if I see my progress. What do you do? Do you do the same block again? Or do you reinvent the block?
0: Well, for me, it's an exercise by exercise basis, right? So I'm like assessing on each individual exercise. So maybe one exercise, like it still sounds not great. I'll just keep it in the routine. And then the way, way the structure works is, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of how the, how the structure where I, I do works, but basically like week one is slower than week four, right? And it works its way up in terms of tempo, generally speaking. And so what'll happen is I'll have worked that thing up and then it's like pretty good. And then I'll say, all right, I'll just do it for another month. And then I go back to those slow tempos where I basically am starting the whole process of refining it over again, right? And then other exercises might be like, oh, this is fine. I'll switch it out for something else. What you're asking, though, is I think the most important question possible is how do you know you achieved your goal? Like, how do you know that that's happened? Sometimes, as you described, you don't know definitively. But I think that's why specificity of goal is very, very, very important, Instead of saying, I want to sound better at articulation, it's like, I want my articulation to be very clear on every note and consistent. And then you're observing, when I started working on this exercise, I had 80% consistency. And when I finished a month later, I had 95% consistency. Well, is it where you want it to be? No, but did I improve at the specific thing I wanted to improve on? There's no question that I did improve upon that. So that's something I try to share when I talk about. I don't know if I effectively did it in the class I did for you, uh, you know, a week ago. That's but great. When you talk about the goal method stuff, the G, the goal oriented thing, I think I try to bring in this idea of specificity. Like, how would you define success specifically? So that when you're working, and then you just got to give it time, because when we're trying to move a glacier of a skill, it doesn't happen overnight, at least in my my experience. And so I'll bring it back to you. You know, for me, this stuff really works. And I've worked with people who are, you know, not as advanced, I guess, if you want to put it as I am. And it seems to work for them as well. The thing that I have not had much experience with is how you would incorporate in my mind, I would just reduce the amount of overall workload for heavy ensemble stuff. So you're doing a similar thing, you're just not doing as much of it. And that what I in my mind, when working with a student, it's sort of helping them basically say, here's what I struggle with, and I've designed this thing. To work on it. Now, I would probably do that for them at the beginning, and then hopefully over the course of time to, you know, help them be able to do that on their own. But it seems like I'm speaking in pure fantasy theory, you know what I mean? So that's where I I, I lack a lot of information. And so this is such a helpful conversation for me. Do you have any thoughts on anything I just said?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's wonderful. And it, it's, I think these types of conversations, well, you know, I if you're listening and you're enjoying this, that's great. I'm sure there are people who are also listening and kind of checking out a little bit because I remember I used to put on TED Talks in my car and restart them six times because I couldn't remember the last three sentences. you know. Uh, but, you know, what's really cool about what you're saying is that we are engaging with it and we're kind of trying to figure out where the truth is. And even if we're unsure where the perfect thing would be and for whom would it be perfect, right? And so my question for you uh, is, don't you love it? Uh, So my students, what I love about working with this age range college uh, students is that they are old enough to kind of buck back a little bit. And I love the devil's advocate aspect to that. Uh, in, In your gold method, I saw a lot of time you would take a slower tempo and work it up. And I wonder, have you ever tried taking the faster tempo and then working it down because I was reading, uh, there's an American String, String Teacher Association magazine that my wife gets. Uh, sorry, sorry, I don't subscribe to that, uh, but I do read them from time to time. And there was a great article by a professional violinist talking about how sometimes starting slow, we kind of get locked into our bad habits. And he said, you know, actually, some things you need to practice really quickly to get. So, have you have you ever done the opposite? Have you taken your method and started fast and kind of gone down?
0: Uh, I haven't. No. Um... It's not it's funny. like I try to make a distinguish a, a delineation rather between also my application and the goal method itself. Like the logical progression, you know, like that kind of thing, like that's a logical way to think about it, to doing things. So it still sort of fits into this the structure of the goal method itself. If you know why you're doing it, And then for you, your optimal starting place is at full tempo so you can get feeling like the right habits and then you work your way backwards for a period of time. Like you're still doing the gold method, right? Like you're still doing it. It just doesn't look exactly the same way. My questions would be for this person who wrote it, like the idea of locking in bad habits at a slow tempo are just as valid starting at a fast tempo, right? Like right. you could basically just spend the first period of time wasting your time because you're playing something way too fast. So like I would be curious what the answer to that is. And if the answer is it just sort of works itself out, well, that's also the answer to <laughs> to my side too, right? Like right. if you start slow, this is why I try to do shorter, shorter chunks. Like when I'm learning a solo piece, instead of working on it for six weeks, I work on it for three two week periods and it's because i want to get i want to start slow to build good habits and then i want to get to the end but if i take if i do it in 2 weeks that means on week 3 i have information that i can then go back to the beginning of the process and then continue refining right does that make sense so and then you can do it a third and then a hypothetically infinite amount of times and and like refine infinitely and then my fundamentals approach is that, but on like a scale of like ten years, right? It's like one month is just going to teach me this piece of the puzzle, and I'm going to use that information to make the next month that much better. And I'm looking at like ten years from now, what am I going to know?
1: That's that makes all the sense to me. And I I was thinking about my struggles that uh, when I got to UT uh, for my doctorate, and my first lesson with Saki, he said hey, what do you want to do? And I said, treat me like a freshman. I want all the fundamental stuff, uh, like just really. And he goes, no, I can't do that. You're a colleague. And I was like, this is what, you know? And he said, well, uh, what do you want to play? And I said, well, the t- I just blurted out the Tomasi concerto scares me. And he goes, we'll start with that next week. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, here we go, right? This is yeah. what I'm looking for, you know? Uh, and with the repertoire I was playing, I would feel as a player, if I work on it for t- about two weeks, I'd feel like I'd maxim- maximize about where I could get with it. And I went to him and I said, hey, you know, in two weeks in, I feel like I'm kind of hitting a wall. And he goes, great. So stop playing the pieces for two weeks and find the fundamental skills and dig into that, right? And it got, kind of goes in hand in hand with what you were just talking about. But also this book I'm reading, uh, it's uh, John Elliott. He's a performance psychologist. And he wrote this book called Overachievement. And he's talking about the training mindset versus the trusting mindset. And how when you do deliberate practice of course we're we're very critical and we're looking at everything but then how when we're performing and i've seen this in my teachers because i've had both sides and uh in the teachers i've had is you know how do we get to that high level of state of flow where you're just playing and just hearing the sound and following the musical phrase right Mm -hmm. so you know i like that his idea was okay you work on the music for a couple weeks and if you know if you have the time to do this then you have a couple weeks where you just dig into the fundamental aspects and then when that plateau should come back and re- renew what you're doing, is that kind yeah. of what you're doing?
0: Not quite, but it's the same concept. Yeah. You just need a lot of time to prepare a piece that way. Right. right. Like you need more than like four weeks to do that. If you're going to stick a block of fundamentals right in the middle of that, you'll need like two or three months really to get the most out of that whole process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way I think about how to get into that. I guess if you want to call it flow, I just call it like, I think you just need a period of time at the very end of what you're doing to stop deliberately practicing and to begin deliberately practicing on the performance itself. So you're now, you're basically like, I've done, this is why all these different phases matter, but you're basically, I'm done with that kind of work. Like I'm not going to do this slow. I'm not going to do that kind of thing anymore. I'm going to hit record on the recorder and I'm going to play through the whole piece at tempo for better, for worse, and see where I'm at. But instead of now I'm going to go practice it, it's I'm going to get in my mind all of the solutions that I already know how to do. And tomorrow I'm going to run it again and remember all of those when I get to that. And you're basically refining your mindset for performance at that point because you already know how to do that. You just have to basically get the skill of playing through it and figure out what do I want to be thinking about at the same time. That's my approach to it.
1: Well, it's kind of like when I say to a, a young student and I say, hey, there's somebody in the community, like a middle schooler who'd like trumpet lessons. Would will will you be willing to teach them? And they say, oh, I can't do that. I don't know how to teach. It's like, and you've been playing for eight years. Of course, you know how to do that. You know, uh, it's you know the, 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 the psychology of it is interesting, too. And I read The Bulletproof Musician, and I steal from that as much as I can. Uh, so I had a student come in once, and he played a movement of a piece, and he chipped every other note the whole time. And I said, great, go back and do it again and chip all the notes on purpose. And then he played it and he didn't chip a single note. Yeah. You know, that kind of mindset that we're trying to go for. And, you know, I think that's the, the the thing with young players is they're stuck in sometimes the self-doubt aspect is in there. I'm hoping that their training blocks and whatever, whatever way they're going through it, I think you do the same thing is that you're trusting, you're 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 instilling that you can do it you're in, through repetition you're showing that you you have the confidence you're building confidence right yeah it's like you're building that mindset of performance right
0: absolutely and i'm obviously coming at it from like a performer's mindset right like it's for me i'm trying to figure out what i do and then tell other people like there's there's very little like in that aspect there's very little theory about what i what i'm talking about it's all like i'm playing at uh, this level that i'm playing at i feel i'm doing it very consistently sure i have i have things to get better at i'm not trying to pretend i'm perfect so my approach maybe where i differ from some people is like in my approach to teaching i tell people what to think about because I feel like I've found this level of high-level performance based on the things that I'm thinking about. And so I'm like, I want you to think about this specific thing until you get to the reality that I want you to get to and then figure out how to make it your own, right? Like, I don't want them to be carbon copies of me, but I want them to play the trumpet the way that I play the trumpet. And I know that thinking about this thing can work. So it's sort of like, I'm going to imprint it upon you. And then over the course of time, I want it to meld into your own approach. I I very rarely will just be like, figure it out, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Well, and that reminds me a lot of when I started teaching uh, when I was in Houston and building my studio. And a lot of times, I had gone through this rigorous kind of performance mentality. And so a student who had like chop issues or performance issues would come into a lesson and I'd be like, hold on a second. And I try to make the sounds they're making or the way they're doing it just so I could kind of reverse engineer. Like, how did you get to that point? What are you doing that I'm not doing? How did how are you approaching this? And then it's like kind of like we're standing on uh opposite sides of a circle and look in the middle and it's a quarter, but they see tails and I see heads. And I'm trying to get them to walk around the circle to see, hey, it's the same thing. You know, it's it's just a slight tweak to it that kind of illuminates it. Yeah.
0: In in Jeff Colvin's book, did he talk about how deliberate practice is trying to basically figure like the way you do it is you observe experts
1: and try to figure out what they're doing. Did he talk about that? It has been a while since I yeah. read it and I've read a few books since then so I'd hate to say anything definitive. But Yeah, the, I just read Peak, sense, I just yeah. read
0: Peak, which is Erickson's book and that's what he talked about. That's kind of why I, I thought this, in, this is interesting to me because it's so much more like, like I feel like I learned how to articulate better from watching like I told that story. I watched Hokon play these Charlier videos and then I was like what is he doing? And then I sort of made some hy- like some guesses about it, and refined that hypothesis over time. But that it wasn't like a this is a common approach to it. It was like, what is he doing, and how do I figure out how to do that?
1: Hello, hello,
0: hello. You're back. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, I was just saying that thing about Hokan and how experts and and so I'll sort of re I'll just sort of say the 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 thought again and we can keep going. Um just don't stop your recording if you if you did. Or oh, it's still you, going. Like, I didn't yeah, yeah, touch good. it. <laughs> I'll just edit it later. So all I was saying is, in Erickson's book, he's saying that like w- one of the things about deliberate practice specifically is that there are experts in a field, and we can figure out what they're doing, and that we can af- and then we can apply the way that they approach their performance or whatever to ourselves. And so I watched Hokan do those Charlier videos and I was like, he articulates with so much more consistency, but not just that, it's like, he just doesn't look like he's a, when he plays, he plays like he knows the note's going to be there. When I play, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like I'm certain it's going to be there. So I started to figure out, I tried to figure out what is he doing? And I made a hypothesis and started to experiment. Again, within the structure of my gold method routine, right? It wasn't like I abandoned all structure completely. It's just the what I was thinking about changed. And like to me, that's where the experimentation or the flexibility comes in in a routine. Is not so much in how much we're playing or what we're playing, but rather how, what we're thinking about and and what we're experimenting with. Because in my mind, like what we're thinking about has significantly more impact than i mean we need a proper exercise selection to be appropriate for our ability level but at any rate that's why i was curious because it's like it's less like theory for me and a lot more like this is exactly what's happening and i want to tell you exactly what's happening because if i can tell you and then it works we just saw like that solution should work forever you know what i mean
1: well, you know, and that's it's really interesting. You talk about the, the observational aspect of that because, uh, like, we do a morning warm up on uh, at 7 30 on Fridays, and I'll play it's call and response. And after we finish a, a, a block, sometimes I'll look out and say, uh, Do you guys notice what I'm thinking about today? Or what did you notice? What are you hearing? What? How are you engaging with this? And if and my, my concept is they get engaged when they just got out of bed, then surely they can engage in the afternoon. Um, but it's, you know, the concept of seeing the whites of their eyes, right? You When young players are observing Håkon uh, H- Hardberger or anybody uh, at a high level, they're the, the whites of their eyes, they're so keen, uh, dialed into what you're doing. They're so keen on what's happening that, you know, they're vigorously engaged. And to me, it's like, can we show them that? Because sometimes they'll walk in and we'll go through this and somebody will talk with me later in the day. And I'll say, well, did you notice that the problem you're having now in this lesson is kind of? Did you see me dealing with that this morning when I picked up? And did you see how when I started, that's where it was for me that day? But by the end of the routine, it was gone. How I I was finding a way to get to bullseye. You know, if I pick up the dart and I throw it, and I'm on the wall, <laughs> which happens sometimes. How do I get that to bullseye for the rest of the day? And it's amazing to me that sometimes they're just largely unaware. You know, some of the things we do are so subtle or so nuanced that for us, it's really loud and clear. But maybe for younger musicians, it's not as clear, right?
0: Absolutely. So right now, I'm experimenting with some people, um, like two people, um, who are willing to let me try. <laughs> um, I explain, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what I'm doing, because it's kind of speaking to this. I told them exactly how I play the trumpet. I, we made a routine together, and then I recorded the entire routine. So what I'm hoping is not so much that they just say, oh, here's this sound, but they can actually hear the nuance of what it is that I'm doing while playing in the recording. So that at the end of it, their recordings sound more like mine, but not just in terms of sound, but actually in terms of like intent based on that particular thing. And this is a theory I'm running with, with deliberate practice, that it's the mental representation thing, right? It's like, I give them not only the sound of the mental representation, but actually physically how I'm thinking about creating it. So they have two points of contact towards that that they can do. And then I've also recorded an exercise that is at their skill level. So it's not like a, I've listened to someone play this really hard etude. And then I'm trying to figure out how does that apply to me? But rather I have an exact replica of what it is and I know how to do it. And I can hear when I am and when I'm not. And then just encouraging them to record a certain protocol in their routine so that they can hear accurately if they're doing it and make sure they're staying on track. That's the experiment I'm running right now.
1: That's cool. And I like the fact that you have it, like a multifaceted approach to that. They, they you're telling them, but you're also maybe not as implied. You're, you're showing them. That's cool.
0: Yeah, because I just think what I'm mostly interested in is the mental representation. Like, How do I get someone to understand what's going on in my head and how I create what I do? Because in my mind, if they fully understand it, they should be able to recreate it.
1: Yeah, and then the question is if they're not recreating it, how do they engage with it to recreate it, right? It's the journey of it. Absolutely. And like
0: that's obviously that's what a teacher and a coach is for. Like it's not I'm really interested in the language because it's I in my mind if I could figure out the language of it, I could share it more broadly and people would be able to not misinterpret what I have said. That's what <laughs> I'm very gun shy about sharing things because of that reason. Um but yeah, in general, that's why a teacher will never be replaced like you'll always need a teacher because everybody is ultimately an individual even though certain similar principles will apply from person to person totally agree
1: i mean that's the end of that <laughs> how, sentence how could you not
0: <laughs> <laughs> um all right so towards the end of this interview i think it might be kind of fun to uh, you sort of alluded to some of these aspects of your life at least once before when you wanted to quit i try to just have my guests share a little bit about times of struggle could be uh, professional, could be personal, if it's relevant that you feel like you want to share about that. But I feel like some of these lessons we learned during struggle uh, are are like the, most, the ones that we can connect with the most, you know. And not just for the sake of, oh, like you're telling us this thing that was hard. But it's like I went through this thing and I learned this lesson. I'm better off for it. So we can encourage people who are in the midst of struggle or who may find themselves in the midst of struggle someday soon that like continuing to persevere can often teach us like the most important lessons of our life. So if you have any examples of things like that that come to mind, I'd be interested to hear.
1: <laughs> I mean, I have plenty of struggle. <laughs> do you have the time to listen to all my struggle? Let's uh, do it. So so uh, one of the things that I has changed for me is moving here to Oklahoma and moving in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, we were in school for five months and then I didn't even finish my first lap before we shut down and with that my identity as an orchestral player and a freelance musician kind of flew out the window because that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. And so for me it was a, well, what's next? What do I do? Where is my career at this point? What is what should I be doing? And I I saw the recital thing and I was like, "Oh, I'm an introvert. I hate attention. Like for me the worst thing I could possibly do is get up by myself on stage and play for people." Uh and so I, I talk to my students about that. Like, I, I don't see myself as a recitalist, uh, but I tell them, like, this is, a, I want them to understand that you don't have something perfect before you put it out there. And one, uh, we see this all around us all the time. So there was a Shark Tank incident where this person walked in and Mark Cuban interrupts and says, Are you a perfectionist? And they said, Yes. He goes, I'm out. <laughs> He's like, You'll never get your product. Uh, perfect enough to release. And so you'll be held back by that and you'll never get there. And I'm trying to embrace that, like I said earlier, with collecting a rejection letter from everybody uh, and turn it into a game. And so I told my students, it's like, look, we are in an educational atmosphere. And although I am the quote professional around, I want you to see how I'm still approaching this as if I'm a student. Because I hope that I'll still be a student when I'm in my 80s, if I make it that long, and that I have a lifelong ambition to learn. That's all I really care about. And so I have probably given eight recitals in my life (laughs) before I came here and I've just done three since November. And so I'm trying, I told them, I said, I want you to see me go through this. I want you to see me struggle. I want you to see that I'm not always putting out my most refined, polished product, but that you see that recital to recital that you can see improvement or that we can talk about the things that you've seen. Because I think the older I get, the more I start to realize I don't need to be perfect. Uh, yes, I want to be. Yes, that's my aspiration. But today I'm perfect. Tomorrow somebody else is more perfect, right? Is is it a competition? No, it's art. Everybody gets a seat at the table if you if you have something good to say. And so I want them to see that I I have this thing that I'm not completely comfortable with, but that I'm going towards it with ambition, and I'm trying to find ways to pick it apart.
0: Yeah, it's well said. Um, I've found that, you know. I, Like what i said i don't want to release anything that could be misinterpreted right like in terms of especially in terms of trumpet pedagogy because like as you said things can get very dogmatic very quickly and so um like with this gold method app thing you know like i there was a lot of testing that went into it before i released it to people that could do it right people the the public and then even since then, now as I'm talking to you and I've talked to other trumpet teachers, like thoughts are running around my head about how it could possibly be improved. And it just feels like maybe I should have never have released it until I got all this <laughs> information. You know, I, t- I, I totally agree. It's, it, it, and it, it just won't, I think this is just going to exist in life in general. You know, like that, there's that perfection is the enemy of, or like, what is that? Well, perfection is the enemy of progress. But there's another quote that's like, done is better than perfect. And like, uh, you know, the, like creating a video or or something like that. So I appreciate that perspective.
1: Well, even on, I think for me that around 2008 was when I got a healthy dose of life. And, and one of the things that happened to me was the, I guess it was the week before my dad passed away. We were talking and he said, uh, he was 55. Uh, and he said, you know, I still don't know what I want to do with my life. Mm. And then he died. And then that had to sink into me that some people never find that. And that's Okay. And I think we we live in such a structured civilization that it's like, okay, K to 12, we're preparing you for college. Okay, college. Okay, we're preparing you for the real world. And you get there and they're like, what's this garbage they taught you? We're going to have to retrain you from the ground up. Or you get there and, you know, the thing I think about music careers is you look back and it makes a lot of sense. You see how you got there and why it's the right fit for you at that time. But if you had told yourself 20 years before that that's where you would be, you would have said, that's nonsense. There's no way that's ever going to happen, right? So how but do that sense? That, s- that's... Go ahead. I was gonna say, how do we make
0: sense of what you just said? That it's like we have this structured thing, and then it's just like we just move through life going to the next thing that we're supposed to go to to some degree, especially as musicians. Especially, it's like there's a sort of a path that many of us follow. And I think lots of people are becoming hip to the idea that there are other ways and uh, avenues of progress. But still, I think the vast majority of our field sees it as like there's a few paths you go down it's like you freelance until you find a teaching job or a, pl- a playing job and like we just like i said we accept that so how do we make sense of all of that and like try to find some meaning or some purpose or some joy or some even peace in the middle of all of that
1: how can you i mean how do you find what you what you don't know you're looking for right so yeah i think it's if we are expecting a concrete career and a concrete path to get there there are people who do that it's great. They're inspiring. I really, I appreciate Some people can go out in their third audition and win great jobs, but also there's like the faceless 5,000, the people you never saw who pursue that and they have a very different course. And I think it's important. And maybe this is because, you know, I agree with you about the growth mindset and that I'm willing to be imperfect. And I just want to churn that until something great comes out, right? Like pressure and time equals diamond kind of thing. Uh, But, you know, I think that's my point to my students is uh, if you think you're going to perfect this in four years, then I I think you have the wrong ambition. It's, yes, we want the highest result possible. Yes, I'm going to push you as hard as I can. However, the end result is not perfection. The end result is, you know, professionalism or it's what is this saying about you? You know, in 2008 and recently, I think a lot of musicians have looked at their careers and said, what's next? Uh, The cool thing is we did go through this in 2008, so we know that things will come back uh, and we know that things will recover. So if you're a young musician and you're kind of feeling like all is lost, don't be. uh, Some of us have been through this before. Uh, It may not look the way we think it will, but we know that arts will always survive. Uh, But, you know, like if you perfection is just never going to be it, you know, and how many times in your career have you ever played a concert where you're like, that was exactly perfect. Perfect. Have you ever done that? I mean, I don't think I've ever done that. Maybe that's because I'm not performing all the time. <laughs> yeah, it depends but, on
0: how you define perfect, obviously. But there have been a few concerts where I walked away being like, "I think I did what I wanted to do there," you know. But it's a right. You know, I can count them on one hand out, out of the right. thousand. I've probably you know however many I've performed at this point.
1: So in the thousands of or however many you perform at this point, what's your goal there? How do you get ahead in there? What's if if it wasn't something you walked away from and went like, exclamation point, what was the- Yeah, what was no, the this embri- is a great
0: question. I've thought about this a lot because I see a lot of my colleagues, if it doesn't quite go the way they want it to, it's like they walk away upset or angry or like defeated or lots of self-doubt or, you know, like, gosh, I'm not going to be good enough. I've really, really done some <laughs> mental gymnastics to get to this viewpoint that if an audience member liked it, I'm good. I still have a standard, and I will still try to be better for the next concert. But in terms of my satisfaction, I try to not let it come from the pursuit of perfection, but rather the sharing of whatever it was. And the audience member doesn't even have to say, I liked the first trumpet part. They can just say, that was a good concert. And it's like, okay, I did my job. At least, you know, they may not have heard all of that stuff that I heard, but if they liked it, that's cool. And then again, and then I'll go home and say, okay, like, I did my job, but how could I do it? Like, why did I struggle? You know, scientific method stuff. Why did I struggle with these things? How, like, what do I think is going to fix them? You get in the practice room and you try to figure that out.
1: It is. And, you know, that's the end result to me. And the thing that keeps me moving forward is, I remember years ago, and this goes back to my first piano instructor that I quit on. uh, And somebody told me, I mean, she was a wonderful pianist and, and, these ladies would walk up to her after church and say, oh, beautiful playing. Thank you so much. That really touched me today. And I really enjoyed what you were saying. And thank you so much for being here and performing at that level for us. And then instead of saying thank you, she would systematically dismantle everything she did wrong in front of them. And they they were put off by this. They were like, you don't think we could hear that there are mistakes? That's not the point. That doesn't matter. What matters is that... The intent behind it was there, and that overall, whether you missed the wrong note or not, we loved this experience. You know, and I think about the pandemic and what that means for all of us too. It's the audiences are coming back to the concert halls. We just played uh, OKC Phil Saturday night. It was it was really encouraging to see that the auditorium was mostly full. Mm. Uh, and what's really inspiring is that people people need it, right? They they're coming and they're, they're feeling depleted or stressed and worn down. And for that hour and a half or two hours, they can kind of get away from that and they can be inspired. And I try to think, I mean, I try to, (laughs) all these things I talk about are things I try to do in my play. I wouldn't say I'm expert at getting there, Uh, but that's the path, right? That's the fun of it is that here we are pursuing this thing. I think if I ever quote unquote figured it out, I'd probably get bored and find something that I couldn't do, right? Yeah, I'm with you there. There are certain things. That's like a
0: lot of me right now is trying to like, I'm just trying to figure, there's a thing I'm trying to figure out right now. And I'm trying to decide, am I trying to figure this out because this is like what I feel like my life is for? Or am I feeling trying to figure it out because I need the answer because I like solving puzzles and then I'll have to move on to a different thing? Like that's a real question I ask myself all the time because I've dedicated a significant portion of my life to answering this question that I'm trying to figure out, which is how do we learn how to learn things?
1: And are you okay if on your desk, Dad, you feel like you still don't have the answer? Well, yes, and there's a reason why. There's a book I read called "Was It Called uh,
0: Chase the Lion." It's a great book. Um, it's written by a pastor of a church in DC, and he just talks about like having big dreams and all that kind of stuff. But one of the aspects of the book is that he's saying like, if your dream, if you just acknowledge that the dream you're chasing or the thing you're trying to do is will take longer than your lifetime. <laughs> like you approach it differently. Like if you're like I want to like if you're like I want to solve this big like whatever. Like people who are like scientists and like we want to solve X thing that seems impossible. They just spend their life doing it and then they pass away, but all of their research and all of their work is still there and other people can pick it back up and they realize that they're serving this bigger picture that's going to benefit a lot more people than themselves. So I think the answer is yes for me now. It was not Yes, before. But the answer is yes. Like I want to actually just get as many people on this on this solving this problem that I'm in, that are interested with me. And hopefully it can benefit people that we great we understand whatever. Maybe people don't care about it. And then if I die and people pick it up and it helps, then yes, absolutely. I'm actually totally okay with that. Um, because I think, it's a worth, I think it's a worthy endeavor and I think that's like it's given me a lot of purpose in my life, you know? That's kind of what you're talking about. It's like for a long time I felt like I didn't have much purpose. It was like I'm playing this job and it's cool but and I think the audience likes it because they clap but I don't actually know if they like it because I don't interact with them hardly ever. So like does what I do have any meaning? And then obviously through like teaching and education and stuff like that I find You get a better sense if the work you're doing has meaning, which is cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, getting out of like a conservatory and going in the world and feeling like a failure because I hadn't won the orchestra job was something I dealt with for a long time. And and someday I kind of woke up from that and said, wait a second, I have a job as a musician. I am therefore, quote unquote, a professional musician. You know, I feel like the students too. I feel like there's that, you know, imposter syndrome is more and more a thing. And the question is, for me, you know, if I can be effective to one student, if I can like, you know, the the one person who comes up at the concert, then we know we're in the right place, right? Uh, Surely, you know, we could all collaborate and get into it and geek out and find ways to make that more broad, like a mass appeal, which is cool, which is why I love what you're doing. And, you know, I feel like we're, a lot of us are doing that now as we're trying to find ways to get to, you know, it's... You, you inherit all these people and all these great players and what is your mark on that or how are you helping to contribute to the pile of evidence which is great artistry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's right. That's that's really cool.
0: Do you have any final thoughts, anything that you didn't get to share that is very important to you that you wish people would hear because it's important to you?
1: <laughs> uh, do you want to spend a second talking about the, the Trevor oh, workshop? Oh, my
0: gosh. I can't believe I forgot about that. That's Okay. Yes. Let's talk about well, that. Because I think it's a cool idea. And not only just that it's available, but the idea behind it, I think, is very deliberate, practice and so it'll fit right in.
1: Yeah. And, and that's why I was thinking about it just now is because I think it kind of synthesizes what we're talking about. Uh, but we're running a, a virtual workshop. I know people are kind of burnt on the virtual thing, but hear me out. It's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, it's called The Other Side Understood but it's OSU as an other site, but also as an Oklahoma State University trumpet workshop. Uh, and how it works is uh, we've done this once nationally before. And so we're going to do it again this summer. And I think Ryan Beach and Carrie Schaefer are going to join us, which makes me super excited. Uh, and I I thought for me as a professional, Once I had sat on the other side of auditions enough that I started to figure out some things about the audition process that I did not understand when I was just taking the audition. Uh, And so my goal is to kind of illuminate that for others. So we're doing a workshop where you have active participation. It's not like you're gonna watch some kid get up and play Charlie A2 with some expert. You're gonna play. And as a participant, you get the chance to submit an audition tape. You get a chance to uh, then go on, be on the other side and listen to all the audition tapes. It's an anonymous experience So once you register, uh, everybody who submits the tape, the tapes will be labeled candidate one, candidate two, candidate eight. Uh, and then everybody, like when we're in the Zoom meeting, you, your name will show and people will know you're there, but when you're playing will be guarded. And I think it's important to have an uh, anonymous aspect to it so people feel free to put their full selves out there. It's a workshop. Geared, uh, it's focused on growth and it's focused on learning. Uh, I think it's really important to hear the other side. And then we have these great artists coming in, Ryan and Carrie, who can talk about uh, what their process is like, what they heard in your audition, uh, maybe how they would approach things differently. What they're, you know, sometimes you get to an audition committee and like everybody on the other side is thinking something that you maybe have it's eluded you. Uh, I also like that it's a low cost in high return event. So if, if you're like me and you had to go home from college and work at JCPenney, uh, or you had to go home and work some retail job just to afford being in college, uh, I wanted to provide an opportunity for you. Uh, we're looking for highly motivated people. Uh, you'll get an audition list, you'll have two weeks to work it up, and then we have a week-long workshop that you kind of do most of it in your own time.
0: Yeah, I think this is such a cool idea because you get so much feedback on your effort. You know, So I'm, like when you take a regular audition, you get almost no feedback unless you happen to email the committee and they happen to have taken notes that make any sense whatsoever. Um, so the fact that, you know, you can take this audition, you can work up actual excerpts, you can listen to other people's actual excerpts, and you can get feedback from people who have done auditions and like I think it's just such a such a cool way to get a lot of really um, valuable feedback. So um, Trouble Players, definitely check that out. I'll just leave, a you can tell them, I think what you should say is where they can find you, where they can find the event. I'll leave this stuff in the description. But uh, yeah, if you just want to say how you get in touch with you and where they would find this event, that would be good.
1: Well, if you're interested, you can email me now at joe.cooper at okstate.edu. Uh, we have not made our website live yet, but in the, in the next couple of weeks, it will go live and registration will be open. And it's a big rabbit hole of data, too. So we uh, type out everything. You get to see how you're rated on each excerpt. You get to see comments from every participant. But also, uh, we delineate out who the guest artists were and what their comments were. And you get to see where the group was in line with the professional. Uh, And then we talk about bias and all this other stuff. It's a a good old time. You love
0: it. I think this is great. So check that out. And um, if you're interested in this opportunity... Um, was that the best way to get in touch with you in general, whether they're interested in the thing or not? Yes.
1: My university email address is the fastest way to get to me. All
0: right. So check them out there. Um, Like I said, I'll leave that in the description so you can uh, find that. Uh, If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on thatsnotspit.com or thatsnotspit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, had any feelings whatsoever, I'd appreciate it if you would give it a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, don't forget to leave the uh what uh share it on social media that's it don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find it uh joe i really appreciate you giving me your time this is a great conversation i hope people got a lot out of it i know that i did thanks man to be continued (laughs) absolutely um i want to thank brandon yokum uh for doing such great work on the podcast mastering side of things and most of all i'd like to thank you for listening Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.